Junk food has become as common a part of American life as the obesity and type 2 diabetes it causes. But this problem is not just an American thing. Over the past 20 to 30 years, the junk food industry has found its way into a number of emerging economies, impacting food and beverage choices of the respective populations, negative public health outcomes, and government policy and regulations, or lack thereof, to address obesity and type 2 diabetes epidemics, especially among children and poor people. And that is the focus of Lehigh University health policy and politics expert Eduardo J. Gomez in his new book, Junk Food Politics, How Beverage and Fast Food Industries Are Reshaping Emerging Economies. Eduardo, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you, Trey. Thank you so much for taking the time and inviting me on your show. It's my pleasure. I really enjoyed this book because it opened my eyes to a problem that exists globally that a lot of Americans are are probably uh, pretty selfish with regards to what they think about type 2 diabetes and obesity, that they think it's more of an American problem than it is anywhere else. But uh, that is clearly not the case after reading Junk Food Politics. So what was your initial inspiration for this book, Eduardo? Well, initial inspiration basically came, um, I remember I was in London at a cafe and I was reading an article about the power of uh, industries in the U.S. and how they had shaped research um, at Harvard on sort of the linkages between food and heart disease. And um, this particular article was arguing about how industry basically convinced researchers to emphasize uh, the in- negative impact of other foods on heart d- disease, except for sugar, right? And so sugar was sort of not emphasized for many years on its impact in heart disease, cardiovascular disease. And that really shocked me, given the how powerful industries are. I have been working in many years on obesity, politics, and policy in the U.S. and Brazil, and how Brazil was doing better than the U.S. when it came to responding to obesity in general, and the general public. But I noticed, in addition to that article, I noticed um, over the years that despite Brazil and other countries' innovations, obesity cases among children and the poor were still increasing. And it really puzzled me that all these, you know, uh, preventative campaigns, nutrition campaigns, Brazil has a wonderful nutrition network and government and society, increasing awareness, doing things that we're not doing in the U.S., we're still seeing these outcomes. And at the same time, I was reading articles about the power of these industries. So then I started to realize, well, maybe industries and their political influence is having a big impact despite these policies. There's something else going on behind the scenes uh, that is influencing government's unwillingness to really tackle what's at the heart of the issue is regulation, limiting industry's impact on advertising and sales to vulnerable populations, mainly children and the poor, people that are often incapable of making their own uh, choices on nutritious foods, having lack of access to nutritious foods. And so it was really the realization of worsening health outcomes, the realization of these industries, which is something I had never really uh, thought about in my research that prompted me to to work on on this book. I had also been working for many years on the BRICS countries, Brazil, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. And I really wanted to focus on these emerging economies because I think that you were seeing a rising middle income class at the same time we're seeing increases in inequality, 
And uh, and so I, was, I really wanted to focus on those countries as well, although, although uh, I found throughout the course of my research that many other countries, including Indonesia, which I included in my book, uh, are facing similar challenges. So that's where the, the, the impetus for this book came from. And so you did end up focusing on six different countries, Mexico, Brazil, India, Indonesia, China, and South Africa. Why did you ultimately settle on these six? Well, I settled on those six mainly because, in my opinion, and one of the data suggests is that they are the leaders in their region when it comes to obesity and type 2 diabetes. Secondly, there was a lot of data and information published on these countries. So as a researcher, you often want to make sure that there's enough information that's out there, that's written about there, that you can evaluate compared to others. Uh, but also, I wanted to get uh, cross-national, regional representation, Latin America, Asia, and Africa. I mean, of course, South Africa is uh, the largest economy in the, in, in the continent. It's where Coca-Cola has had the, law, the, the, the biggest history and presence. But of course, Nigeria, Ghana, or other emerging economies that I'll talk about that I'd love to look into. But it was for those reasons that I selected uh, these six countries. And because we're going to be talking about how the junk food industry has influenced these very uh, various countries and their educational programs, all the way down to regulations or lack thereof, I guess it would be a good idea to provide some context with what exactly is the junk food industry. So what are you uh, thinking of when you talk about the junk food industry? Sure. So I define personally junk food as uh, sugary beverage, soda, ultra-processed foods, and um, and looking at uh, not only the big corporations, Coca-Cola, Pepsi, Nestle, Mandela's International, but also the interest groups that represent these corporations. And so that's what I'm really focusing on. Uh, it's what I sort of define as the junk food industry. Um, you know, looking at the soda, beverage, ultra-processed food industry, uh, particular companies, but also uh, the, in the, the vast industry associations that represent them uh, in these countries. And perhaps that speaks to my next question, but you say, generally speaking, junk food politics is a two-way street. How so? Well, for many years, we've always pointed the finger at major corporations, right? Um, blaming them, right? And um, of course, they're partly to blame for what they do in terms of advertising, sales, corporate social responsibility, lobbying. But at the same time, we haven't really considered the fact that presidents reach reach out to them, right, for uh, achieving alternative economic and social welfare objectives, anti-poverty campaigns, malnutrition campaigns, anti-hunger campaigns, and for achieving their economic goals of jobs, employment, uh, economic growth. So it's a two-race street and the industries reach out to government, but also presidents and political leaders reach out to industry for their own gain. And it is interesting to see the common qualities that exist across these six different countries with regards to not only uh, how things have been impacted, but also the timelines in a lot of instances. So a lot of these emerging economies really began their rise in the 1990s. Uh, you see skyrocketing cases of obesity and type 2 diabetes, especially among children and the poor. Governments tend to set up educational programs, often with the help of big junk food, 
but also there's very little action in the way of policy to limit, discourage, or even tax the marketing and or sale of junk food, especially toward children. You write that a combination of industry fear and opportunity have combined to lend insight into why these junk food industries have invested heavily in emerging economies. You know, the the idea of opportunity makes a lot of sense to me. These are for-profit companies, obviously, but I don't quite understand the fear element to that. So why do they have so much fear, Eduardo? Well, they have fear because of several factors. One is the increased nutritional awareness in the U.S., Western industrialized nations, about good nutrition. What is good nutrition? We've had for many, many years exposure to junk foods, right? Uh, and we've had a lot of public awareness campaigns and knowledge uh, young people are now questioning, should they eat a cookie? I was on campus the other day and I was overhearing a, a young lady looking at a cookie and asking, should I really be eating that right now? And that when I was in college, I don't recall ever thinking about that, right? I don't recall ever questioning what I'm about to consume. As I discussed in that chapter, the knowledge, the information, the surveys revealed that we are more knowledgeable, whereas in other countries, this is not the case yet. So there's a fear of that knowledge, people knowing and, and decreasing their consumption. There's the uh, decline in, in sales in certain categories for sodas uh, and, 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 and foods. Um, and so there is uh, you know, attempted taxes already happening. We're in the U.S. We're the first in California to implement soda taxes, and there was a wave of taxation going on in other states. And so there's that fear uh, in the U.S. and other advanced industrialized nations, but mainly in the U.S. And opportunity is happening in other countries where this nutritional knowledge hasn't been around for as long, where the soda taxes is new, just getting started, where there's no regulations. Of course, there are no regulations in the U.S., but far less in the emerging economies. And so uh, that's been motivating a lot of the companies that I talk about to look to these other countries as uh, their next point of focus. Um, and, uh, and I think that with time, more and more people in the U.S. will start to realize the harms of these foods and for our children as well. And so that's what I mean by fear and opportunity. So the first of the six countries that you cover is Mexico. So that's where we'll start now. The junk food industry really began to take off south of the border in the mid-1990s. Considering the timing, how big a role did NAFTA play in all of this? Oh, huge, huge. NAFTA was our first free trade agreement between Mexico, the U.S., and Canada, eliminating tariffs uh, for imported goods. You know, if you go to Mexico City today, a Levi jeans will cost the same amount as it would in Boston, right? And so um, that really opened up a lot of opportunities uh, for bringing in goods, uh, for you know allowing for a lot of uh, ultra-processed foods and importing them into Mexico and Canada. Uh, and a lot of companies became very wealthy during this period as well. I don't know if people know this or not, but uh, Mexico ranks uh, in the top 10, maybe top five for the most per capita millionaires in the world compared to the U.S. and Russia. I think U.S., Russia, and Mexico, the last time I saw, had the most per capita millionaires in the world. Had to do a lot with the opportunities for export uh, for in the maquiladora sector in the north of textiles. Uh, but a lot of businesses started to emerge shortly after NAFTA. 
Uh, you had at the same time Mexico near, you know, free market reforms, neoliberalism that started with President Carlos Salinas uh, in the 90s, who was very pro-free market reform. And uh, and so Mexico started to open up dramatically during the 1990s, as well as India and other countries, China. And so, uh, so yes, definitely NAFTA and free trade had a big impact on uh, sort of the presence of these foods uh, in Mexico. Now, as you talked about a couple of answers ago, presidents in each of these countries tend to maintain good relationships with big junk food. For instance, during his six years as the president of Mexico from 2006 to 2012, Felipe Calderon had a great relationship with PepsiCo, so much so, in fact, that the company was allowed to work with their secretary of public education to establish several exercise programs in schools. Examples of these clear conflicts of interest exist in most of these countries that you talk about here. Why do these presidents work so closely with junk food companies, not just for policy, but also for other means as well? Well, I think um, it helps to achieve sort of their, you know, their their goals of really trying to increase wellness and be perceived as increasing wellness in society. Uh, you know, also industries, um, you know, have these ideas and one of that's their their argument, right? Is that it's not what you consume; it's exercise, right? So by partnering with government to emphasize exercise. That is sort of uh, lending credence and sort of an example of what they do and what they emphasize and what they think is important. But I think presidents often do this, of course, to show that they're committed to addressing a childhood obesity situation, to you know finding partners that will work with them on this. I think these are some of the reasons why we see this and why, as I talk about in the book, presidents work with industries to achieve other kinds of social welfare campaigns as well as to show that they are genuinely committed to the well-being of their population. That was one of the more infuriating things to read over and over again in this book, that oftentimes the educational programs are focusing much more on exercise than they are nutrition. Uh, for me, as somebody who is passionate about uh, nutrition and fitness and exercise and just a general well-being, I understand that, look, exercise uh, plays a part for sure, but the biggest factor in determining whether somebody is gaining or losing weight has to do with calories in or calories out. But when you're talking about big junk food, essentially dictating the policy here, of course, they're going to steer people in the direction of exercise because one, it sounds good. There is an effect, if it, even if it's not as large as uh, what's being insisted upon, and it's deflecting away from what is the primary culprit here, which is the junk being consumed. And that is what you talked about a few minutes ago. These high calorie flu foods that are often nutritionally scanned, but uh, are helping to make these companies big profits at the same time. Right. Exactly right. Exactly right. The whole goal is to focus on exercise. As you saw in my case in China, right, where yeah. uh, International Life Sciences Institute worked within the Ministry of Health to really emphasize and write China's ob childhood obesity, I mean, obesity policy in general, exercising, emphasizing exercise. Um, and, uh, you know, you know, if you eat, if you drink 10 cans of Coca-Cola and three McDonald's meals, the amount of exercise you'll have to do that day is ridiculous to really burn off all those calories. And, um, you know, it's, 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 uh, you know, it's certainly a, a big problem. And really, as you said, distracts from the need to address the quality of the food that's being consumed. I'm sure as you would agree, 
A lot of today's diseases in our country and other developing nations that type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure can be easily addressed with changing nutritional habits. Um, and, um, and, but that's not uh, what, you know, industries want, right? <laughs> and so uh, they prefer that we be more active. And uh, of course, active, being active is important, but you need to have a, a good balanced nutritional, uh, you know, diet. Yeah, and it's uh, especially concerning because the worst way to consume sugary calories is through beverages uh, because of how quickly that that shoots through your system and uh, just how easy it is to consume a, a ton of calories in a, a short amount of time. Now, Mexico actually did become the first country in the developing world to implement a soda and snack food tax in 2014. How much has that helped since then? It has helped tremendously. I think that the latest data I saw, there has been a decline in purchasing of, uh, of these beverages. But um, as I argue, uh, it's really, I mean, it, the tax is important. It's very good. But when prices of bottled water are still higher than Coca-Cola cans and Mexico, there's a problem. Um, you know, many would argue in Mexico and other countries that the tax isn't high enough yet, right? And that you still have people purchasing uh, and consuming. Um, and like tobacco, uh, you know, advocates, you know, we need to have considered that, you know, increasing the tax more to really make the prices more expensive. I think taxes are a great direction to be going. And I think when Mexico has shown results, uh, but uh, but really need to look at the price differences still between bottled water and, and sodas. As I talk about in my book in India, if you re recall the splash bars that uh, uh, India provides to women entrepreneurs where people get a shot of Coca-Cola for a very cheap price. All right. These are examples of how um, Coke is trying to make it more affordable and, and, and very accessible. Uh, compared to bottled water uh, and other things that are very expensive. Uh, and so I think Mexico certainly was the first country in the world to have a national soda and uh, junk food tax. Uh, and it led and it stood a big example, was praised by many. Uh, but as I talk about, that's just one of many things that needs to be done if we're going to make progress. Yeah, boy, the splash bar example in India, not to do, get too far ahead of ourselves, is a fascinating one for a couple of different reasons. One, uh, they're playing the identity politics game to kind of distract from the topic at hand. But two, by doing so at the same time, they are increasing their bottom line profits by essentially setting women in India up with these businesses that are that are them going out and peddling Coca-Cola for the company. Right, right, right. And the whole idea is to empower women, which is fantastic. Uh, and, you know, they, they make them important in their community. Um, but at the same time, they're, you know, like you said, peddling their product. They're expanding their product. They're going to the most remote areas of India, similar in Brazil. Uh, when I talk about Nestle's floating boats going through the Amazons, right? This is an example of opportunity. When I first mentioned this um, example on a BBC show several years ago, the editor uh emailed me the next day and said, we can't believe what you said about the Nestle boats floating throughout the Amazons. And I had to show him examples about what I was talking about because he didn't believe me. And this is just one of many examples where we're seeing these, these, these industries work in the most remote areas, right? 
In Brazil, if you can't find a health clinic in remote Amazon, you're certainly find a Kit Kat bar, right? <laughs> and that's really sad to see that to see something like that happening. Yeah, let's go ahead and talk about Brazil, because much like Mexico, we see a shift in the political landscape and an increase in the presence of big junk food in the early to mid 1990s. But Brazil obviously doesn't fall under that NAFTA umbrella. So what sparked the changes here? Well, I think the uh, free market reforms, neoliberalism, free trade, beginning in the President Fernando Henrique Cardoso administration, uh, which was a um, um, government that was very much committed to economic reform, privatization. So we saw a lot of interest in multinational corporations investing in Brazil. We also had domestic uh, domestic corporations opening up and own uh, hamburger chains opening up in uh, throughout Brazil. And so it was a time like in Mexico, despite not having a free trade agreement, there was still openness to trade and also uh, privatization, free market reform. And so that was uh, a real uh, big consequence for Brazil. And um, you know, investors love Brazil, right? It's a huge country, huge country with a huge population. And as I talked about in the book, you know, since the 90s and 2000s, you have a rising middle class, but you've also had um, anti-poverty programs, cash transfer programs that are providing a little more money to people um, to purchase foods, right? Um, much, excuse me, much like what we have here in the U.S. with SNAP, uh, the Bolsa Familia program provides uh, uh, credit cards or cards to families uh, that can go and purchase foods under the condition that they take their children to get immunization shots, that their children are going to school. Uh, and these, um, these, these cards really are unregulated on what they can purchase, right? So a lot of these foods, a lot of these corporations are, are understanding and knowing that now a lot of the poor have access to food that they, you know, that money that they can use to purchase foods. And much like in the U.S., you know, uh, communities in Brazil are in food deserts, right? And a lot of what they have access to are ultra-processed foods. If you remember in my, my chapter in Brazil, I talked about the Nestle at the Vosé program, which is a is a entrepreneurship program for women that go throughout the communities in Brazil selling Nestle products, right? And and they sort of time the selling of their products when when they uh, with the uh, the monthly installments of the cash transfer Bolsa Familia program. Um, and so that also gives legitimacy to the product because when you're, you're, you're going around selling Nestle products, there's an association with the food being nutritious. So that's sort of been the dynamic in Brazil. Um, it's a vast growing economy. Now, there's been in recent years challenges with the economy. There's been a lot of, you know, um, COVID-19, for example, emerged. There was a president that was not committed to you know, effectively responding to COVID. Now we have the re-emergence re of President Lula, who was the architect behind these anti-poverty uh, anti programs. And so now we're to returning back to the emphasis on nutrition and addressing malnutrition and hoping that, you know, this government will, will be more effective in, in addressing these issues. But that was sort of the context in Brazil that I talk about. That's right. And Bolsa Familia fell under the uh, Fome Zero policy, which is something right. that Lula did start during his first term between uh, 2003 and 2010. Just how influential was big junk food and really helping to set up uh, all these different programs under that Fome Zero? 
Sure. So there were absolutely there are partnerships that uh, that Lula started, right? And sort of one of the big partnerships was Nestle. And uh, actually, Nestle won the first government national award or certificate for partnership with the government for uh, for the zero Zetafomet program. So you know, Nestle provided funding for marketing of the campaign. Uh, they did a lot of work with the government, and the government uh, also established an office within the uh, within the uh, I remember uh, in the office of the presidency. That was uh, the fo the focus was uh, this of this office uh, was to uh, strengthen the partnership with industries to achieve zero fome. All right. So uh, Lula saw these industries as major partners in addressing and providing support for his zero fome campaign, which was very important for him politically. All right. Very very important. Um, and so yes, absolutely. There was definitely and and it's really shocking that only I was just talking to a colleague of mine that, that knows about Brazil. And very few people actually are aware of this, um, uh, about this partnership and sort of the extent to which uh, uh, Lula's, Lula's administration worked with them to achieve this, this anti-hunger and, uh, you know, campaign. With Lula back in power now, has there been any indication he'll push back on big junk food more than the first time around? Well, uh, the good news is that the federal organizations. I talk about this um, office in the president called CONSEA, C-O-N-S-E-A, which was a National Council on Food Security and Nutrition. That was, um, that was dismantled under President Bolsonaro, the conservative president. The first day in office, Lula reinstates that National Council. And that's very important because that provides an opportunity for nutrition experts advocates to once again start working with the government on addressing malnutrition, food security issues that, that Lula was working on. Now, I have not seen any commitment to changing his stance towards the food industry yet. And that's only, you know, we we'll only have to see if that happens again. Um, and, um, and so, but I haven't seen any evidence of that yet. And I'm really hoping that that will be the case. India, like the first two countries, has seen a big increase in obesity and type 2 diabetes epidemics since the early to mid-1990s. How has India's vast agricultural sector and food production actually played a role in their relationship with big junk food, Eduardo? Very big. I mean, certainly uh, there has been vast agriculture production, but at the same time, there has been a lot of food waste, as I talk about, right? And so one of the things that's very important is that Prime Minister Modi, uh, concerned with farmers production, concerned with food waste, concerned with farmers income, requested that sodas use a percentage of fruits from the, the farming community to you know, ensure that farmers are making a living, right? Ensuring that their products don't go to waste. And as I talk about, uh, Nestle India CEO agreed to go into a partnership in supporting farmers with Modi, all right? So farming community is extremely important to Modi as it is here in the US. And so uh, he has wanted to make sure that they are, may, are making a living and has seen sodas as soda industries as helping in that regard by getting them to you know, uh, agree to uh, use some of the fruits 
that are being processed by these major farmers to in their products. There's also a cultural factor playing into the obesity epidemic in India, specifically with children. Because of a long history of malnourishment and stunting throughout the country, a lot of Indian moms consider their kids to be healthy when they're overweight to obese. When the people most important to these kids have a skewed perception of the reality, that's a huge problem to overcome, as evidenced by the fact that India has the second most childhood obesity cases in the entire world, with something around 15 million as of five years ago. Uh, some parents are beginning to wake up to this as a serious problem, though, thankfully. But unfortunately, their solution isn't improved diet and exercise, but demanding gastrointestinal surgeries for their kids, who are sometimes as young as 13 years old, Eduardo. Where is this idea even coming from? Well, this is a really problematic issue. And I think that the ideas come from other countries and examples, right? Where in the U.S., it's a very common procedure, has become a very common procedure. We can think of a lot of uh, media personalities, individuals that have this kind of surgery. Uh, and of course, you have in India growing, thriving private medical practice industry. They've got now major cities, uh, like many cities of hospital-based private medical care. So you have these growing private entities that are willing to do these kind of surgeries. You have examples from other countries. You have uh, you have one desire for quick solutions for their children, worried about their children's weight. All these factors are contributing to this. And as you, I'm sure, would agree, this is not the solution. The solution is reducing the consumption of these high sugary food products and surgeries are not the solution, right? Uh, and so um, I think this is a very sad example. And I just hope that, you know, that this will not create further incentives and ideas for other countries to do the same, like China, for example, well, where you're seeing a lot of uh, summer camps and programs for child and children's obesity, right? Uh, and so, uh, or any other country. So yeah, it's a very alarming, very sad situation of what's happening in India in that area. Yeah, surgery should be last option after all other uh, options have been exhausted. Now, interestingly, in 2012, India's high court did recognize this problem by having junk food banned in schools. This is a great idea and something that's not implemented near enough across the board, whether you're talking about these six countries or pretty much anywhere else on the planet. How much of a positive impact did that ruling have in India? Well, it was a good ruling. It was a recommendation. Okay, so it was, uh, uh, and so there were some states that did it, uh, but some a majority of them did not. And so, but I think it was a right step forward, right? It all happened from a lawsuit from a concerned father that I talk about, that you know, that that talked about his his child's obesity and concern, and the high court decided to take on this case, look into it. And recommended, and you know that that school, the sodas and, and junk foods be banned uh, within 200 um, yards from schools, right? And also that uh, uniform children, um, the vendors around schools, not you know that they, they, they not sell these products to uniform kids. And I think it's a great idea, but the problem again, and it has happened in many of these other countries, is that it's not being enforced in most of the states. Um, you know, three states in India have done this, 
Uh, but that's just, you know, a very, very small group, group of the vast population in India. But I think it's a great direction. I think it's a great direction. But as I talk about in the book, um, the industries and their associations were very involved in this discussion uh, and committees that the Ministry of Health had shortly after the court's rulings where industries questioned what is health, unhealthy, what is junk food, what is unhealthy food, questioning, you know, is what's being sold to the kids junk food, is our hamburgers junk food, uh, and then questioning if the Ministry of Health should be involved uh, rather than the federal regulatory agency, because they argued that the Ministry of Health is really not set up to be handling food regulation. And so they wanted it to be transferred over to the federal agency. Um, and so where they have a lot of connections within the federal agency in India. So you know, these industries were involved in this process. I think it's a great step in the right direction, uh, but you know, we really need to see enforcement. And that's the, the one of the main themes that comes out of my book is that India, Mexico, you know, you know, doing these things to limit sodas and foods in these schools, but there's no concrete universal enfor enforcement of these measures. Uh, similar to we saw in Brazil, uh, advertising, uh, marketing to children. These are there are federal resolutions, but no enforcement, no penalties for enforcement. And so, uh, so that's what I'm concerned about in India. Um, is 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 that and that? But I think I think that the the high court. Uh, ruling, ruling and recommendation was a really good step in the right direction. And hopefully this will continue. Yeah, the uh, statistics are grim in India. They have the uh, highest number of type 2 diabetics on the planet. 49% of the world's diabetic population uh, is in India. So uh, hopefully these uh, baby steps uh, eventually lead to something more substantial. We're going to skip ahead now uh, to China because uh, Coca-Cola was in China going back 100 years, but it was actually banned in the 1940s. Why was it banned back then? And how did Coca-Cola make its way back into the country around 1978? Well, you had, of course, the uh, Cultural Revolution right under Mao, sort of the, the you know, looking at Coca-Cola as a foreign product, right? And sort of questioning sort of the cultural revolution, you know, taking anything Western based in the country, you know, removing that sort of that cultural issue under, uh, under Mao. Um, and, and just, you know, just seeing the Coke as an American product uh, was sort of very concerning for politicians. Fast forward years later with China opening up, up under um, uh, Deng Xiaoping with the great opening up of the market economy, you see Coca-Cola starting to make a presence again in select cities, uh, but then sort of going into agreements with the government and started finally emerging along with McDonald's, uh, during, you know, by the 1990s and, uh, and sort of gradually being incorporated back into society now just burgeoning in growth. Uh, a lot of not only McDonald's, Starbucks, but KFC. I mean, KFC has the largest growth rate in China in, in, of any other country. It's it's in China, and so uh, I think we when it came to Coke, it was just basically a reflection of the market and change in leadership, uh, where you know China gradually became a very free market enterprise. Uh, um, by the 90s, uh, by the 1990s, late 1990s, and then seeing all these products reemerge again, uh, I think that that's why we saw what we saw that happen in, in China. 
Yeah, it's interesting that KFC is far and away the most popular uh, fast food option in China and has been uh, going back 20 plus years now. Now, snack foods are also really popular in China. How does snacking actually uh, reflect China's unique history in that country? Well, I think that a lot of it is the absence of a lot of foods that were not available uh, for many, many years. So snack foods, sodas, things that were prohibited from the West. Uh, I think also these foods have a lot of high social status. And so because they were not around for many years, because of their association with the West, uh, you know, McDonald's KFC uh, has a different kind of social status in China and other Asian societies where people see it as a high status symbol, uh, which is not certain, certainly not the case in the U.S., right? And so uh, I think that that has been sort of the major cultural reasons why we've seen this, uh, you know, happening and sort of seeing also these, uh, these establishments of providing safe foods, uh, highly, regulated, highly regulated foods uh, that are in you know, good quality. I think that that sort of contributes to that as well. China has uh, a large diabetic population. 10% of all adults are diabetic, which is above the world average, but sadly right around where the U.S. is right now. They have the most overweight people in the world. They have the most cases of childhood obesity as well. And part of this is due to a complete lack of marketing regulations towards children in this country. How has big junk food really exploited that loophole? Oh, Tremendously. I mean, as I talk about in the book, they they found many things, but one good example, uh, CCTV, right, which is sort of the national television, uh, you know, um, uh, establishment. And these foods, uh, researchers that I cite uh, found that they were being marketed uh, during child viewing times, right? There's absolutely no effort to sort of limit that. And it's not only in China, it's here in the U.S. as well. I mean, we have, and so it's, it's that, you know, that has been sort of uh, what some scholars call predatory practice in China, sort of targeting, you know, popular national based television channels that everyone in the country has and flooding them with uh, unhealthy food advertisements. And so um, that's been a major concern and something that was shocking to me as well. And I was doing the research is just a lack of government awareness and, and effort to address this. But at the same time, it really doesn't surprise me because it is a heavily free market society. And I've been in I've been in China and you go there and you just see everything that we have over there. Starbucks, KFC, everything. And so um, it's really it, it, it's very sad to see, you know, the case of childhood obesity and diabetes uh, skyrocketing over there. But lack of attention to addressing these concrete fundamental things that can make a huge difference. What children see is what they want. And uh, and by just allowing uh, these foods to be advertised on these major television networks is just uh, is just a, a signal that the government is not committed to the issue. Coca-Cola in particular has really embedded itself in Chinese policy creation, bureaucracy, and then also academia, too. Uh, how has it uh, found itself as uh, such a big influence in the latter? Well, researchers, you know, are in need of funding, right? And sort of nutrition scientists are in need of funding. So researchers need, are, you know, happy to receive, as I talk about in the book, uh, funding from these major corporations to achieve their, their research. And it's a phenomenon that's seen in a lot of uh, developing countries where nutrition scientists are racing to get tenure in their university, right? And they need grant funding. 
And if you have corporations or NGOs or think tanks that are affiliated with corporations, you know, dangling money in front of them, it's very easy for that conflict of interest to happen. There has, to my knowledge, been no effort to address this conflict of interest in China, in Brazil. This has been, this has been a big major issue as well. And so it's very concerning. Um, it's very concerning to see this happening in China, but it's not a you know a phenomenon unique to the country. Yeah, sadly, you're right about that. Moving on to South Africa now. South Africa transitioned to a democracy in the mid-1990s. It's really coincided with Nelson Mandela's release from prison and eventual rise to power. I did not know this, but Mandela was openly opposed to Coca-Cola and the public early on, including insisting on drinking Pepsi products and visiting Coke's home in Atlanta in 1990. Why was he uh, so hostile towards Coca-Cola at this time? Well, um, that's a good point, and it's sort of uh, a mystery as well. Uh, it may have been that um, you know they had stronger ties with Pepsi. Um, and um, for some personal or or, or political reasons, um, but uh, but that that sort of you have to remember also that um, it was associated with apartheid, sort of these sodas in the past, right? And sort of uh, and so Coke and Pepsi sort of withdrew during this period, right? As I talk about, and later reemerge, and uh, Mandela was sort of um, sort of then change his mind eventually, right? Seeing these uh, these products as a way to contribute to his goal of providing employment and opportunity and growth and job growth, which he was committed to. That was really shocking was this change in views and opinion uh, about, these, uh, about these two soda giants and gradually changing his mind about Coke. So much so as I talk about him going to Atlanta, receiving... Uh, you know, with the vice president of Coca-Cola on his corporate jet, uh, you know, and sort of, you know, being friends with the vice president of Coca-Cola and sort of adopting Coke as a way to sort of achieve his goal of employ employability uh, in, 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 in South Africa. Uh, and uh, so that was, that was really shocking uh, discovery. Much like in India, South Africa is dealing with the issue that uh, has to do with a long history of malnourishment and an idea that being overweight to obese is, is actually seen as a good thing. Uh, how has the government responded in any ways that are actually beneficial towards the public? Well, this is the challenge. I mean, you have a president who is himself has a strong corporate background, right? And so, um, you know, the policies have not been very effective at all. You know, you have no advertising sales restrictions. You have recently an introduction of a tax, um, which is a good sign, good good step forward. But the the you know working closely with activists, addressing all these you know the importance of effective food labels, which as I talked about hasn't hasn't been uh, achieved yet, uh, or advertising sales campaigns. There really hasn't been a lot of commitment by the government to tackling the obesity, childhood obesity, and diabetes problem. And I believe it's it's on one hand, like you point out, it's it's recognizing that the country still is dealing with malnutrition, uh, undernutrition, right, and poverty, a lack of access to foods, a cultural element again, as I talk about, where uh, for many years. Uh, being thin was associated with being ill from HIV AIDS or other kinds of diseases. 
Uh, add to that a president that has a very, very strong corporate background, uh, owning a Coca-Cola bottling plant, owning a fran McDonald's franchise, uh, you know, believing in business, big business and investment as the key to job security, addressing the quote-unquote job tsunami that he called in South Africa. All these conditions, um, you know, really add up to a government that has not been fully committed to addressing these issues. And uh, an activist community are really is a new uh, is a new sector, right? It's in, a, in not only South Africa but other countries, um, um, and so it's uh, it's 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 been a, a context that has not been supportive uh, for this you know this worsening public health crisis in, in in South Africa. And we finish our global tour off in Indonesia, and there are actually some departures in Indonesia versus some of the norms that we've established with these other five countries. For instance, it was closer to the turn of the 21st century that we began to see big junk food wielding a heavier influence in this country. And uh, another interesting footnote is that carbonated sodas aren't all that popular in Indonesia. Why is this and what junk foods and beverages do they enjoy to the degree that we now see an obesity and type 2 diabetes epidemic there as well? Yeah, I think that was very interesting. I think that the, the teas, the, the juice drinks, uh, as I mentioned, are more popular. And um, I, I didn't investigate this further. I was very puzzling to me why that is. Um, and um, but, I, but my suspicion probably is that the teas and the fruit drinks uh, are more closely aligned with, uh, you know, what is more popular and common it has a deeper history in Indonesia, which is like, you know, mainly fruit based drinks and teas is high drinking tea culture. Um, but I think that that's what was very interesting. And uh, but I, I, I believe that certainly that, you know, there are, of course, there are individuals that are drinking sodas as well. And. And, uh, you know, the industries are having a, a deeper and deeper impact in these countries. One startling finding that I found in Indonesia that's present in other countries as well, but, uh, you know, interesting in Indonesia, sort of the dual, the dual malnutrition problem in families where you have uh, parents that are outside consuming street foods, junk foods, uh, being overweight, where at the same time you have children in homes that are undernourished. That are you know that are that are not having the nutrients that they need, and this is a phenomenon not only happening in Indonesia but other countries as well. But I think the fast food culture is certainly picking up uh, throughout the country. I remember when I went to Jakarta a few years ago, uh, one of my favorite ice cream stores, Cold Stone. I mean, you know, do you know Cold Stone Creamery? Oh, yeah. yeah, it was, was there in Indonesia. I couldn't believe it, um, and I was like, wow, you know, this is just uh, one example of. Many, many multinationals that are going there and, uh, you know, sort of going into the the, the country. And, uh, yeah, it was very shocking to see that. <laughs> Big junk food is especially successful at lobbying in Indonesia because of the government's revolving door problem. What do you mean by this? Well, help the government officials going into industry after working. You know, these are, this is sort of the sort of the revolving door issue. And I think it's a phenomenon that's very common in a lot of countries as well. It's just what, you know, health officials having worked in government regulatory agencies, then finding employment within the private sector. Um, you know, I think that that's sort of a, a something that was happening in Indonesia and other countries as well. And it's a big one of the tactics that industries use and are very successful in the U.S. There are many examples of congressional people that have worked in congressional offices 
going back into working in the industry and benefiting from those connections. So yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was not surprising to see that, but it's certain, uh, certainly alarming. So for me, it's hard to remain optimistic about the direction of things after reading this book. Uh, you've obviously done a ton of research. You've written about it. I'm going to ask about whether you're optimistic or pessimistic in just a second, but I think it's also important to talk about the most viable solutions going forward. So what do you think are some of the most important solutions in helping to neutralize the impact that junk food has had on our collective health? And are there any countries that provide good examples of these things being implemented, having that sort of impact on public health? The most important thing is with what I talked about, began the book with, with um, the former director of the World Health Organization, Margaret Chan. And she said that we governments need to take on the power and interests of major industries. And until governments start to take on the power of these industries by addressing whether where their sources of power come from, lobbying, conflict of interests, uh, but also creating regulations that limit the sale of their products to vulnerable populations, until that's done, uh, there honestly, I don't think there's going to be any progress. And industry, and sadly, as I saw in my book, governments and political leaders seem to be afraid of tackling these major industries, right, for political reasons. Now, are there success stories? Yes, I think there are some that are gradually emerging. And one that I didn't talk about that I regret I didn't talk about in my book is the case of Chile, right? Chile has been an amazing example of where senatorial leadership, uh, presidential leadership uh, in tackling industry by not by introducing effective food labeling, but also marketing and advertising regulations. Um, there has been a change in government dramatically, uh, and, and, and you've sort of seen now you have more of a leftist government, but these efforts began under the prior governments as well. Uh, but you have in Chile, you have senior political figures, a very powerful senator, Senator uh, Gerardi, that is in charge of the health committee, who is himself a doctor that works within the Senate and is in charge of the health, the Senate's health committee, that has been the major advocate for these regulations and taking on the food and convincing other government officials that this really needs to be done. Now, this could be a, you know, a one-time scenario 50 years from now with the same senator or similar kind of senator will be there. But the policies are law now in Chile, all right? So these are laws that has not been achieved in other countries. Uh, and it's be, it was in large part because of this senator, because of the activists, because of the, uh, the, the activists that fed this information to the government. And so I think that Chile, of all the countries I've seen so far, it has been uh, a great example of how government can overcome the power and influence of these industries. Mexico is just recently, in the past couple of years, starting to change dramatically. So I'll show, I, mean, I, I, I actually, a lot of things happened after I finished the research for the case of Mexico. Uh, the current government for the first time has gone public uh, saying that Coca-Cola is bad for your health. This is a major, major issue because for many years, Coke uh, presidents never did that, as I talked about in my book. And, uh, and, uh, and so this is a major step forward. Activists are becoming more involved. There's a greater awareness. Mexico has introduced and better improved food labels. 
So Mexico is right up there with Chile starting to address these issues, but Chile is certainly the one that we all should be learning from in terms of um, the conditions that we need to address the power and influence of industry and to not have fear. What's really interesting, uh, Trey, is that if you look at all the countries around the world, it's really Latin, the Americas, Latin America, that is leading in these innovations. And that's been puzzling to me why that's happening. Um, and, um, and, but you have in Latin America a wave of animosity towards free markets that has happened very strongly um, in countries like Chile, now with Brazil, with the reemergence of Lula, you know, in other countries in Mexico, for example, which is something that hasn't happened in other countries as much yet. So um, I think that's a that's something puzzling that I really want to do more research on. But but that's sort of my thoughts, Trey, on 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 that top, on that issue. I look forward to reading that research whenever you put it out in either paper or book form. And last question. And uh, I'm going to preface this by saying that here in the U.S., there's never been a more important time to take control over your own personal health uh, just because of all the manipulation going on and, and pulling you in, in a variety of different directions, but also the state of the uh, U.S. healthcare system. And I think that that exists in varying degrees across the globe as well. So after reading this book, I don't feel very good about the direction of things. So for you as somebody who did as much research as you've done, and this is the world that you live in on a day-to-day -day basis, are you now more optimistic or pessimistic of the direction of everything going forward and why? Unfortunately, Trey, I am pessimistic. I think that even though we've had many, many years of data showing children are getting overweight, children are obese, type 2 diabetes skyrocketing, type 2 diabetes now being seen in adolescents and teenagers and people in their 20s. We have plenty and plenty of data, but no concrete government action, right? No governments that are fully, fully committed to addressing the root of the problem, which again is these high caloric, ultra processed foods that are so easy to get. Uh, uh, in our communities. Um, add to that my concerns with climate change, with the uh, increasingly scarce um, availability of fresh fruits and products in the future due to droughts, with the emergence of companies that are now providing ultra-processed foods to fill in that gap, um, uh, with the inevitable increase in prices of healthy foods because of climate change, all these factors really make me unfortunately pessimistic. We in the US are not the leaders. We are not the leaders when it comes to childhood obesity. I think the Obama administration tried to get us there. We have not made any concrete efforts to address regulation, sales, marketing, advertisement, advertisement is what we really need. And people around the world look to the US, right? For example, um, and, uh, and when they read the book, in my book, that other emerging economies that have done amazing things in healthcare, like Brazil, uh, you know, where I used to refer to Brazil for finding solutions to our own problems, they're not doing well either when it comes to these kinds of uh, issues uh, affecting children and the poor. So I'm very, unfortunately, Trey, I'm, I'm pessimistic. I, I really, I, I'm in my nature, I'm very optimistic. But if I look at the evidence and I look at what's coming the road that, ahead, 
Um, I, I, I don't see the power and influence of industries declining. I don't see politicians completely committed yet. We do have some examples, some shining stars in Chile, like Chile, Chile, for example. And I'm sure there are other countries that I haven't investigated yet. But in the whole, we're not we're not defending the health and human rights of children and the poor when it comes to uh, nutrition. He is Eduardo J. Gomez. The new book is Junk Food Politics, How Beverage and Fast Food Industries Are Reshaping Emerging Economies. Eduardo, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this important book. Oh, thank you so much, Trey. It's been an honor being on your podcast, and thank you so much for the interest in the book. And uh, any 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 time in the future, if I ever write another book, I'll keep you posted. <laughs> I, look, I, look, I look forward to that, Eduardo. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for tuning in. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.